All right, and there you have it, a little Van Halen for your listeners out there. Hi, this is Alex Ramirez. Welcome to the Coach's Corner, presented today by Protein International. Today is Wednesday, February 12th, and uh, having a great day here in Arizona. I feel for you guys out east. I think it will be about uh, 75 to 80 degrees today when we hit the courts, so having a great weather. We want to remind you guys that you can uh, reach us on the phone at 347-637-1197. Again, that's 347-637-1197. You can also uh, send your questions in uh, to uh, do on Twitter at Pro10 Radio and on Facebook at Pro10 Radio. Our website, Pro10Radio.com, has all of the uh, podcasts from the past. If you missed our show uh, yesterday with Taylor Dent, it was a great show. A lot of insight from Taylor and his academy and his and his uh, history and tennis, his career. Um, we also had Johan Creek. That was another blockbuster that we had on last week. You can catch the, the podcast, like I said, on Pro10Radio.com. Uh, coming up next week, we have Pat Echeberry, great fitness trainer for a lot of the pros that you see on tour, that you have seen on tour, uh, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi. Uh, on deck, we have uh, Liesl Huber. We don't have a date for her yet, but we're chasing her down. And we have uh, Frank Giampaolo coming on uh, in a couple of weeks to talk, talk to uh, tennis parents about how to be a better parent. Today, I am uh, very excited for our next guest. Uh, I don't think Ken has ever heard the story before, but he, um, I took my very first lesson from him after getting off, off the circuit and came off uh, the circuit, started working for the USTA, and went on his court with a little chip on my shoulder thinking, what can this guy teach me? And let me tell you, the way he communicates with players, he can teach anybody pretty much anything. He's been my mentor ever since, and I'm just uh, excited and grateful to have him on the show. Ken is a, a master professional in both the USPTA and the PPR, and there's very few of those. He's a Wilson Premier Advisor, Advisory Staff. Uh, he's a two-time USPTA Southwest Pro of the Year and a two-time USPTA NorCal Pro of the Year. He's a member of the USPTA Educational Committee and a PTR National Tester. To top it off, he's an associate editor for TennisOne.com, a drill consultant for TennisMates.com, and co-author of the International Book of Drills, and a drill contributor to Pro Magazine, uh, Tennis Pro Magazine, Advantage Magazine, and Tennis Magazine, just to name a few. This guy stays busy, busy, busy. Uh, so at this time, I'd like to welcome on the show Ken DeHart. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Alex. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Long-time friend. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I know you would never heard that story before, but, uh, you know, you taught me a lot both as a student because uh, I never really had lessons before. I was just, you know, using my natural talent and wasn't very, getting very far with it. But also as a coach, you, you know, I attribute a lot of the stuff, probably 90% of the stuff that I do now is attributed to just being on the court with you and, and listening to your lessons and watching you at, at conferences and, and and remember we went to Mexico and I um I translated a whole weekend seminar in Mexico <laughs> and uh that was, fun. that was just uh amazing so uh very very long history what i remember most is uh we had the DeHart Ramirez Tennis Academy at the Western Resort Club there in Tempe and i still have a shirt from the academy copies of the tennis uh magazine it had a USTA section with the president of USTA um, and one of our, our shirts on the front of it, and back when Les was the uh, president of USP, USTA, and it was the yes. Tennis, uh, Ramirez Tennis Academy on there. I have it framed on our wall. You know, that was uh, the very 
first opportunity I had to work with you in, in conjunction with an academy, and that's where I think I learned most of the stuff is is being on the court and listening to how you how you talk to players to get them to actually learn what you're trying to teach them, and uh, and I think that's what this is all about in the, in this show today is is there's there's teaching tennis and then there's teaching tennis. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and and you're a, a true master of really getting a. Uh, and I was a hard-headed uh, player, you know, when, I, when we first met. And I don't know if you remember this, but we were actually serving. And yes. I was missing my serves, and you came by, and all you said was, hey, you might want to loosen your grip there a little bit. I think you knew I was a little standoffish, and I was, I was new and, and uh, had a little, a little chip on my shoulder. But you just said, well, I might want to loosen that grip a little bit, you know. And at first I thought, what is this guy talking about? you know who I am? I just came off a tour. I'm, I, I'm working for the USTA. Who is this guy? And uh took me two seconds, and I said, oh, I'll try loosening my grip. And sure enough, it worked immediately, you know. And uh, ever since then, I, I pay close attention to what you have to say. So, um, part of it. Yes, absolutely. So that said, I, I want to start off the show by, by helping out the pros out there with maybe two or three common uh, mistakes that you see and quick fixes that you've learned in the years of, of your experience with, like, the forehand, backhand, and search. So we can start with the forehand. Two or three things that you see that are really common and the things that have helped you um, fix those those problem areas. The most common error on the forehand is actually the left hand. So if you're a right-handed player, the left hand is usually the cause of most of the errors. The symptom, and we talk about causes and symptoms a lot, the symptom is you're moving your racket incorrectly during the swing. The cause is your left hand doesn't have a job description. And by that we mean if you watch the players take the racket back, they take the racket back, the left hand stays connected with the racket until the racket is behind the body. Much like a baseball player, his hands are just behind his hips when he starts to play. When you watch the pros take a racket back, they have both hands connected with the racket. So that's the first function of the, the left hand. If you notice the pros, they're actually adjusting their grip as the racket's coming back. So the left hand's really holding the racket. The second function of the left hand is to reach out across the body to judge the distance away from the ball. Uh, players that get crowded have what we call a T-Rex forehand. The left hand's in really close to the body, like a little T-Rex dinosaur. Right. And then, of course, you have, the, you have the doggy paddle forehand where they swing, the left hand drops down like they're paddling in the water. <laughs> and then you have the, I'm not, I'm not sure which way to go forehand where they swing, the left hand goes the opposite direction of the right hand. Basically, the left hand doesn't have a job description. The third function of the left hand is to create the pathway for the right hand to follow. So when the left hand comes up toward the left shoulder, it allows the racket to go up that direction. If the left hand drops down by the side, it'll pull the racket down. So the first thing I see when I watch somebody's forehand is, is there a symptom in the right-hand side? Look for the cause in the left hand. And most pros, we, I was just talking to a friend of mine earlier today, uh, most pros are good at recognizing the symptoms and trying to fix the symptom. Like you're rolling over the ball. Uh, why is that? Well, because you're hitting the ball too late. It's making your racket roll over. Most carriers on the, on the forehand side you can fix by looking at the left hand. So I'd say to the coaches out there, next time you look at a person's forehand, look for the three things that the left hand does. You give the left hand a job description. Number one, the left hand takes the racket back. If you turn your left shoulder, the right shoulder has to go back. Number two, the left hand judges the distance away from the ball. So it doesn't point at the ball. It points across the body where you're going to have to reach the ball. The third function is the left hand to move up and away. 
So actually, we have the players catch the racket in their left hand and really focus on they actually have to catch it. Not that you do that when you actually play a match, but you're trying to train your left hand to be in the correct spot. So if I catch the racket in the left hand, I know the left hand's not decelerating the racket. And so right. I think you and I have done before, too. There's a thing called a, a release forehand. You actually hit the ground stroke, and as you hit it, you release the racket into your left hand. The right hand comes off the racket in the middle of a swing. And it's to teach the player not to grip the racket tightly after they've hit the ball, but to release the tension. And also, if you put the racket in your left hand, you, you have to catch it, or else you go throwing it into the fence. So those are the, right. that's the thing I look for most on the sneak-wise. But what I, okay. I notice mostly is more the mental disconnection, and that's connected to the eyes. There's a product out there called the iCoach, and it's on a website called T-H-E-E-Y-E Coach, the iCoach. And it's the only product that Billie Jean King has ever endorsed in her career. She's been sponsored by people, but this product she actually endorses. And it's a training mechanism for the eyes. And what it does, it teaches you how to keep the eye still, like a fetter, until after you've made the shot. And it also teaches you timing and balance. And it's a home training device that we use on our court, but we actually sell to our club members so they can practice at home in the driveway, in the living room, in the rain, in the snow, and you never have to leave the court. We actually use it in our warm-up drills on the court with the players. So instead of me feeding balls, I actually have two lines hitting on the eye coach, and I coach their eyes. If the eyes move, the feet stop. If the eyes move early, the racket stops. So the symptoms are you stopped moving. The symptoms are you didn't follow through. The cause is your eyes moved. As soon as your eye moves, your hands and feet think you're doing something different, and they stop. So that the eye awesome. coach, learn how to coach the eyes, and looking at the left hand on the footwork is really important. Um, the, we mentioned footwork accidentally in that one, but uh, then we look at footwork. There's seven different footwork patterns at least that the pros use during a point. And you try not to complicate things, so you focus on a typical type of footwork first, and that might be it's a squared off stance, a neutral stance. And that's what you're trying to do because that's what you're going to hit when you create power or a line of power. You want to step in the direction you want to go. We try to avoid using the word step into the shot because you focus on the wrong foot. You focus on your left foot to your right foot. Instead, you say push off in the direction you want the ball to go, which causes the step. So once again, the symptom is you stepped into the ball, but the cause was I pushed off to make it go that direction. So as a coach, I keep looking at symptoms all the time, and I don't get a lot of results without affecting the cause. So a summary of that would be, first I look at the left hand to see if it's causing an effect on the shot, only because the players want something technically they can fix. What I'm really interested in as a coach is, where are your eyes? And then the footwork is adjustable based on either the kind of ball you're receiving or what you plan to do with the ball. So I hope that isn't too complicated, but that's what we look for on the forehand side. Okay. I'm glad this thing's being recorded because I don't, I can't write fast enough. <laughs> I talk um, pretty fast, <laughs> but this is all very good. Now, uh, brain, we obviously brain have the one back. What was that? I'm sorry. The brain thinks about 600 words a minute, and most of us speak about 300 words a minute. I speak about 450 words a minute. So I try to <laughs> slow my talk down behaviorally. <laughs> um, so on the backhand, if you can just Break down real quick the differences you see in errors between the people that want to hit a one-handed backhand 
and a two-handed backhand. Are, are there any many uh, things that are common in those two that of the errors that you see in those in that stroke? Um, typically, the first thing I look at on the backhand is the grip, because that, the grip will decide point of contact. So if the symptom is your contact point is late, the cause is your grip won't let you hit the ball any further in front. So I look at the grip first to see what the kind of grip they've got. Second thing I look at to please them again is their footwork. What I'm really interested in is their eyes again. Shots that I don't trust, my eyes look up because I need to find out, did I hit it over the net? problem is I try to see if I hit it over the net before I hit it. So when my eyes come up, I see the net, the player, or the fence. So what are the three errors you make as a player? I hit the ball in the net, I hit it back to the player, and I hit it out. So those are all eye errors. Because wherever my eye goes, my hand thinks that's where the ball is supposed to go. But right. to please the player, I look at their grip, I look at their footwork. Because those are the things that are tactical and technical, I can, I can actually, they can feel a difference in that. It's hard to convince them that the eyes are really the cause of most of the errors. And we've all heard the expression, keep your head down. Um, my head comes up because my eyes move. So once again, I'm fixing a symptom because my head is down. When it's really the eyes that are making the head, the head come up. Um, the thing I find that players do, they cross over on the backhand a lot. And a crossover meaning the right leg intercepts the weight transfer. So you're hitting a one-handed backhand. You want to get to the ball on your outside or your left foot. I seldom speak about stepping into the ball. I talk about pushing off into the ball because my left leg is my power leg. My right leg receives the weight. If the coach says step into the ball, which foot do you think you focus on? Your front foot. Which leg is your power leg? Your left foot. So you, the coach usually gets what he asks for. So if he's having problems getting results out of the students, it's usually because the words he's using aren't really what he's really trying to get. So we work a lot on trying to use terminology between the student and the coach that's the same language and not symptomology. My coach has always told me I had to try harder, uh, one, to have it more often. You've got to be more focused. Um, You've got to give it more effort. You've got to be more patient. And I had no clue what they were talking about. Right. I had to fight real quick. If I see this, if you quit yelling at me, I must have got it right. I'd like you to take two more steps before you hit your shot. I'd like you to look for the spin on the ball. I'd like you to hit five feet higher over the net. That was something that I could actually visualize and something I could do, and he and I could both measure. So we look a lot as we go into our conversation about how to get what you ask for. My last presentation was drills and games and getting what you ask for and talking to coaches about what they say and why they think they're not getting results. But on your backhand right. question again, yeah, I look at the the step, the footwork, and using the outside foot or the left foot as your power foot, the grip, which will decide point of contact, and the eyes. And that's to please the student. As a coach, I look at the eyes first, then I look at the grip, then I look at the footwork. Very good. Is that too confusing? Very good. Is that confusing? Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Now let's move on to the serves. And the serves, i got to tell you, for some reason, uh, God has a, has a funny sense of humor. But for the past yes. year, I've gotten students that have all sorts of problems with the serve. And so uh, I've always digging around for more information to – they all have an idea of how they want to do it. They just right. can't execute. When I tell them, and you taught me this, show me the serve in the air so I can see what's in their head and how they see them executing it. And then when they actually execute it, it's totally different things, right? What's in their brain right. and what actually comes out is totally different things. So talk about a couple of 
of really good tips that, that you found that, that work really well on the serve. Alex, you're a genius. Um, <laughs> you're right. I, I did a, I have someone mentoring or um, someone shouting me this week, and the first thing I had my student do was close your eyes and show me your shot. If the motion's correct, I know, I know what it looks like, and they do it correctly. Then when I actually have them serve, I can see which piece is actually messed up, so I know right. which piece to fix. The PTR offers a methodology that says there's 12 steps to teaching the serve. To know the 12 steps, I don't have to teach them all 12 steps. I only find out which piece is missing. So the thing we look at on the serve mostly is the idea of how to hit, how to hit up when they're hitting. So we start, usually when I have the player serve, I'll have them hit two serves from the baseline to appease them. Then I'll have them back up halfway between the service line, or excuse me, the baseline and the net, and serve from back there. They immediately relax because now they're not serving like a match, they immediately hit up on the ball more and have a higher arc over the net. So the first thing you do is have them serve from further back. Take away their tendency you want to hit the ball hard. 80% of players out there think they hit down on the ball. Um, coaching mistake, that's our, our fault. The right. other thing is um, when the player starts to bring the racket from behind them up to the ball, the wrist snap at the end that you see or feel is just an indication that you did accelerate the wrist. If you wait to try to snap your wrist as you hit the ball, it'll never curve fast enough. The only part, it's really funny here at, in uh, San Jose, we only wear out a certain part of the tennis ball. We've never worn out the top of the tennis ball ever because when you hit the tennis ball, you hit the outside, the backside, the inside, and the bottom side. All of our tennis balls have little fuzzy tops because we never hit the top of the ball. That's a joke. But the point <laughs> is, when you talk about hitting over a ball or hitting the top of the ball or hitting down on a shot, that doesn't happen much in tennis. You actually hit on the, the bottom or the outside or the back of the ball. So the misconception for most players is they can hit down over the net. And even Isner proves that that's not possible. You have to hit up on a serve. So what do I look for when I'm watching a lesson on the serve? Close your eyes, show me your serve. Now show me your real serve so I can see which piece is missing. Right. Um, most players have a grip problem as their first challenge. Uh, the second problem is terminology, again, from their coach. Toss the ball in front of you, and that's a real challenge. Uh, tossing the ball in front of you, watch someone serve. Are they facing the net when they toss the ball up, or are they turned to face the side net when they toss the ball up? They're turned to the side. So where is in front of you? To the side. So if you watch the pros, their arm comes up toward the baseline, parallel to the baseline. So that's actually in front of them. But most of us think in front of you is being toward the net. So they throw the ball in front of them. Usually they move their back foot forward to try to reach the ball, and then you get down on the ball. When you have them players serve, the first thing you do is you stabilize their base. Because theoretically, you're going to right. toss the ball so you don't have to move your feet. So I have them stand on a donut. That creates what we call proprioception, meaning they can now feel where their feet are. Because if I tell them, they can't feel it. They're focused above their head. So they have them stand on a donut, and they can try to hit a serve only by turning their right foot into what they call a bug grinder, which is very common terminology in baseball and golf. Your right foot is a, is, is a turns the foot as it does a little bug grinder or foot rotation, which accelerates your hip. So on the donut, right. have them serve if they can learn to serve without moving their feet, which will automatically affix their toss. Because if they have to move their feet, obviously the toss is in the right spot. Uh, toss your yes. feet to the right of your body because your arm is connected to the right of your body. Um, getting them to hit up again. 
If you hold the racket behind your back, so it's hanging down behind you, if you grab the bottom of your racket and try to and resist as you're pulling up and all of a sudden let go with your left hand, the wrist snap will occur. And you'll feel this acceleration upward toward the ball. And that's what you're really trying to get them to feel from there. Yes, I do that uh, with, uh, we call it cleanup, where you don't move your feet. You keep your feet still and uh, that's how we kind of start off the kid. We're pretty much anybody that comes in with problems on the serve. That's how we start too. them off. You can't fix the serve uh, if they're sliding. If they're sliding, right. you can't fix it. Absolutely. And I don't know if you noticed, but we got cut off there for a little bit, so I don't know how much we missed of your talk. But uh, we're coming up against the break, so I'll ask you to hold on one second, Ken. And everybody on the line, hold on. We'll be right back after a few minutes. Hold on one second. Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh! Oh, nice! Giddiness. You get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus Sam Query and John Isner, two of America's brightest tennis stars, rely on Prince. And more than 100 other ATP and WTA pros use Prince's XO3 technology. With large ports, allowing the strings to move more freely, XO3 provides a better ball response all the way to the edge of the frame. The result? Better shots more often. From touring pros like Sam and John to players just starting out, Prince offers the perfect XO3 racket. Get your Prince XO3 racket today at TennisWarehouse.com, the ultimate equipment website. Paula Sala is a real Geico customer, not an actor. So to help tell her story, we hired that announcer guy from the movies. When the storm hit, both our cars were totally underwater. In a world where both of our cars were totally underwater. We thought it would take forever to get some help. But a new wind was about to blow. With Geico, we had our check in two days. Payback. This time, it's for real. Geico. Real service, real savings. We're here asking people from all over what they think of lifting green tea. Let's hear what people from Texas have to say. Mm-mm. How about China? Mm. Germany? Mm. 
How about people from the North Pole? Mm. Or Mars? It, what about mimes? Oh, right. People with their jaws wired shut? Oh. Yeah, a barbershop quartet. Mm. Oh, you guys are great. How about race car drivers? Mm. Yeah, what about you, high school glee club, here on a field trip? Well, that settles it. It sounds like everyone loves the taste of Lipton green tea. With its protective antioxidants from real tea, it's not just good for you, it's mmm to you. Lipton tea can do that. There we go, a little more Van Halen for everybody out there. You can tell, one of my favorite bands. Uh, welcome back to the Coaches Corner. This is Alex Ramirez. And we're joined today uh, by Ken DeHart, USPTA and, and PTR Mass Professional. Uh, welcome back, Ken. Hey, and, Alex, I'm ready to go. All right. Well, in the second segment, you know, we, we talked about in the first segment um, about the forehand, the backhand, and the serves. Let's touch right. a little bit on the volley, and then we'll move on to the next topic. Go ahead and tell us something about the volley, uh, errors that you see uh, typically on the volley. In, in sports in general, there's three basic moves. You either run, catch, or throw. Um, running can be offense or defense. Um, catching is a volley motion. A ground stroke is an underhanded tossing motion. It serves an overhanded throwing motion. All you're doing is using a racket to make the, the move more dynamic. The most people think of the volley as a swinging motion or a hitting motion. So if someone says, punch a volley, um, they use words that, that could um, incorrect responses from the student again. If you tell someone to hit a volley, they'll swing. If I tell someone to touch a volley or direct a volley, they won't swing. So first of all, I usually get what I ask for. I say, we're going to hit some volleys. I don't swing. Uh, that, the visual doesn't really work. The brain doesn't respond that way. So the most common error I see is that they, want, they haven't understood that the volley is a catching motion or a directing motion more than a hitting motion. So I say, well, where does your power come from? From your legs. Uh, your, powers, your lower half of your body is your power. Your upper body is the directing part. So when you volley, the most common error we see typically is someone either swings at the volley and guess why they swing. If their eyes move, their hand follows the ball. So I've invented over the years all these magical ways of teaching someone not to swing until I worked with the eye coach and uh, Lenny Sloss, and I learned that if my eye moves, my hand follows it. So I drive a motorcycle. First thing they told me in the class was, if you look left, the motorcycle will go left, and you will run right. off the road. So <laughs> when I applied that to, to the volley, if you watch someone when they swing in a volley, it's because their eyes move to follow to the target. If their eyes stay still, like a fetterer at the point of contact, they won't swing. You have to worry about all these magical tricks you have on how to teach someone not to swing. 
So how do you make the ball go? You move your feet. Well, if I ask someone to do something, say, Alex, would you move your feet? Move your feet more. Your brain says, how much more? In what direction should I move them? So when I have to explain things like that again, I, my students usually don't do what I ask them to do because I didn't tell them what to do correctly. So if you put right. a cone out in the middle of the deuce service court, have the player stand behind the cone. You feed them a forehand volley. They have to make the volley, circle the cone, and recover back behind the cone. And you repeat this several times. They go from the right to the left. You can visualize that. It takes about eight to ten steps to get to make the volley and recover back to starting position. So what we've taught them to do without telling them how is how to get in position, shoot the volley, and create an exit strategy to get ready for the next ball. So the three E's are enter, execute, and exit. Most of the pros, if I, when I travel and speak, I'll say, uh, Alex, show me a forehand volley. And they'll go up and they'll make a volley and they'll freeze. And I say, okay, now, this time, Alex, make a volley and circle the cone. And then I'll ask the audience, so which one was a real volley? And the coach gets it, too. He says, oh, I showed you execution. The problem is if I stop with an execution, I die because I started an execution. There has to be an exit so you enter for the next ball again. So the three things right. I see on the volley, one is the eyes move first. They confuse a volley with a, with a hitting motion, and they're not sure how to move their feet. So I fix the feet without having to explain it a lot by having them circle the cone. They do a backhand volley, have them circle from left to right because that will teach them how to use their outside foot or their left foot to get to the ball on so they can move the weight forward. They can push it forward again to move into the volley. Once right. you teach them to um, touch the volley, if you just use the word touch or direct, they won't swing anyhow. So the three things I look for are eyes, what I'm really trying to do with the volley, and then how to move your feet to get in, in position again. And I think as coaches, we have hundreds of ways to teach someone how to hit a volley. But it's really pretty natural if you if you don't confuse them with too much work, too much uh, verbiage. Uh, the other thing that really works good is say, well, how do you teach someone to hit a short volley? You give them a short target. How do you teach someone right. to make a deep volley? Give them a deep target. The brain has a built-in GPS system. So if someone says, how do I teach someone to hit a short volley? If I put um, a, a big target, so you want something really small, a big target, say, look, volley for the target. Within three balls, they'll hit the ball short. I said, now... I'd like you to volley deeper about how deep. I have to give them a definition again. Uh, I'll put to something about nine feet in front of the baseline. I said, I'd like you to volley the ball to the deuce court side about nine feet in front of the baseline where the target is. Three to four shots, they'll control the depth. Now I said, that was so awesome. Let me tell you what you did. I didn't do anything. You did it. When you wanted to volley short, you softened your grip. When you wanted to volley deep, you squeezed your grip. So what you vary between when you want to go short or deep is your grip pressure. And that's all you do. It's pretty simple, really. You give them a short target. And then they say, well, how do you hit a drop shot? I said, well, I just have them give them a short target, have them hit the ball short. I said, now, can you hit a little bit of spin on the ball and make it go short, too, and hit a drop shot? So typically when I travel and speak, I try to find one of the maintenance guys, and I try him how to hit a drop shot within three shots. And I said, great. <laughs> My maintenance guy can do this, and all he knows how to do is, is do the clippers, he can do the racket and hit a drop shot, and you can't. I think you're getting bad coaching. Right. So that's, we try to keep it pretty simple stuff and understand how the brain and the body works together. Coaching really, really much easier. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I, I learned from you 
that was it, it, we're going on to another topic, which is coaching, the actual coaching aspect of it of our of our skill, if you will, right? And right. Uh, I went to a to a conference with you when you were speaking, and then I was impressed as a, as a young up and coming instructor that you actually sat at every other talk in the front and took notes. And, uh, and you taught me and you said, I said, Ken, you could probably teach this stuff. And you said, I know, but if I can get one thing out of this talk, that makes me a better coach, one more thing that I can do. And I've taken that to heart with everything that I do, you know, not just because I know certain things, I can't learn more. But uh, uh, with that said, if you could talk a little bit about it. a lot of coaches don't really look for additional help with their coaching or or uh, go to conferences. And we have two organizations, the USPTA and the PTR, and I think both have a lot of pluses. So if you can talk about the pluses that you see in both organizations, whether a pro wants to become PTR or PTA, I tell people, you know, they both have a lot of pluses. Join one and really learn your, your trade. Can you talk a little bit about your master professional in both, about both and their benefits of each? Sure, Will. You know, what you mentioned, Alex, is huge. I just got invited to speak at the Minnesota High School Coaches Workshop. And the last time I was there, the guy said, okay, we're going to fly you in and we'll fly you out as soon as you want. I said, no, stay for the whole conference because that's my chance to learn again. Like you said, if you can learn one new thing with all the things you know, think how much you multiply that by. Um, right. For three years in a row, I won the USPTA. I had the most continued education points of any firm in the country for three years in a row because I went to every workshop, every conference I could find to possibly go to. And uh, I've been on the education committee for both the PTR and the PTA for many years. And when I, I, was, I was actually the executive director for the PTR. I ran the professional tennis registry for Dennis Sandemir for three years. And I was still a member of the USPTA the whole time and a member of the both PTR. And I went to both seminars all the time. Um, the more you can learn from each other, and the pluses I found from the PTR was they teach you a system. And everybody says, no, no, they're teaching you how to teach. And I said, no, no, they're showing you a system. They give you a skeleton, and with all the things you know, you're supposed to add all the meat to the skeleton. Right. Like the, the, the teaching methodology you get tested on with the PTR says, look, here's 12 steps to the serve. Here's the, here's the steps we look for in teaching a forehand and a backhand. And everybody said, well, this is real simple stuff. I said, yes, it is. And with all the stuff you know, you can make it really big. So your the job is in to add the muscles, but there has to be a system that you have in within you that you work with. And that's what the PTR really does. It gives you a system. The other thing they do is they have a very small office staff, but you call there, you always get a pleasant voice, and you can talk to Dan Santorum, the CEO, Julie Gilly, uh, Inyaki, Steve Keller, immediately, right then, yep. that person. Right. Um, the PTA advantage is there's divisions. And if you have aspirations to be a divisional officer and learn by being part of the USPTA system, by being an officer in an organization and then having feedback from the national headquarters, that's a great avenue. So I've been a member of you know, the USPTA as a regional vice president, you know, secretary or treasurer like that. Great teamwork connections that you get that aren't quite as available in the PTR. Um, both organizations offer great symposiums and educational opportunities. Um, as soon I, I do testing for the PTR, and as soon as they finish the PTR testing, I say, here's the name of the organization to contact next. Contact, get your USPTA membership as well. Um, there's no one organization that's the best, but they each have specialities that they have. 
they're great. So I'm a member of the USPTA. I'm still a member of the Georgia Professional Tennis Association because I lived in Georgia oh, wow. for one year. And I'm still a member of the GPTA. I tried to join the Southwest USPTA, but you can't join just the Southwest USPTA because you're a member of the USPTA. And I said, why can't I just, I just want to know more about what the Southwest is doing because that's where right. all my friends are. I've been competing for 10 years. But I couldn't join the USPTA Southwest. I had to join this. I'm a member of the USPTA International. But uh, I'm a member of the Minnesota High School Coaches Association. I'm a member of the Montana High School Coaches Association. I'm a member of the Indiana High School Coaches Association. And I write articles <laughs> for them and get, it, get information for them all the time. So the more, the more you can find out about those, the best way really is to talk to other pros uh, look on their websites. These guys provide a huge amount of information and educational opportunities on their websites. The, US, the PTR has just developed an incredible ITF-approved uh, junior performance level workshop, uh, how to teach 7- to 11-year-old workshops, and how to teach the and under workshops, as well as business pathways. They've, yeah. they've really stepped up and become the leader in pathways for continuing education for different levels of things you want to do. So I'm very proud of them for that, and um, they do a great job with that part of it. And, you know, I'm a, a member of both, and, and, and same thing. I get a lot of both. I had a chance to speak with you a couple of years ago at the Southwest USPTA conference. By the way, I was really nervous having you watch me. <laughs> but uh, uh, I was very proud of you. <laughs> well, you know, watching you. You so, watching you so long, uh, it made me – I think anybody else would have made me nervous, but having you, my mentor – there watching me, that was probably the most nervous I've been speaking in front of an audience. And I just came back from speaking for uh, the Texas Tennis Coaches Association. That was over 700 coaches. And over here, we only had 100. And with you watching, I'll tell you, I was the most nervous. But um, <laughs> but uh, we're coming up against a break. We're going to take a little break. On the, on, when we come back, we're going to talk with Ken about some uh, how to coach tactics. And we're going to talk about one of the things that I know that you do very well, Ken, is, is communication with players, how to get the players with your words, with the language that you use, how to really learn. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Don't go anywhere. The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh! Oh, nice! Giddiness! You get giddy! You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? The thing is, everyone wants to save money on their car insurance. You asking if they want a free Geico quote's like asking if they want free oh, pie and chips. Of course they want free pie and chips. It's pie with chips for free. But pie and chips, uh, you can get them anywhere. Geico quotes made from scratch just for you. Only at geico.com. Tennis Warehouse offers the lowest guaranteed prices, so you'll be tripping over deal after deal. 
With our diverse selection of apparel, you can surprise your opponents with stylish looks from brands like LBH, Hale, Prince, and K-Swiss. The world's largest selection of rackets and strings allows you to find the perfect balance for your game. At Tennis Warehouse, you can demo up to four rackets at a time, allowing you to juggle models to find the perfect choice. Tennis Warehouse, we are serious about tennis. Chicken, not included. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. What are you doing, Snuggle out of here. Wait, come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. And we're back. Welcome back to the Coach's Corner on the Pro 10 Radio Network. We're back talking with Ken DeHart, PTA and PTR Mass Professional. And we're going to dive into a couple more things. I want to remind everybody you can reach us at Pro10Radio.com, uh, on Twitter at Pro10 Radio, and on Facebook at Pro10 Radio, or you can call us in at 347-637-1197. So, Ken, now we're going to uh, touch a little bit more on, uh, let's start with, with language. And the language that, that coaches need to be using, because a lot of coaches have good information, they just don't know how to get it out to the player. We've kind of addressed that as we've gone along a little bit. Um, like I said, my coaches always were, you got to try harder, got to want it, got to keep the ball in play, uh, move your feet more. And I never really understood, you know, exactly, specifically what they were trying to get me to do. And eventually, if they stopped yelling about me, I figured I did it, but I wasn't sure what I did, so I learned by accident. Um, it goes back to simple things like think of anything you tell somebody. If I, if I tell, my, my, some, tell someone to say, move your feet more, if you can ask a question like how much more in what direction, you didn't tell them anything. But if I said, I want you to take two more steps between shots moving toward the net, right away we have something we can evaluate as a team, you and I together as a coach. Uh, if I said, uh, Alex, loosen your grip a little bit. What if I told you, said, Alex, I'd like you to serve with your grip as tight as you can hold it. We're going to call that level five. Alex, hold your grip as soft as you can possibly. We're going to call it level one. Alex, would you serve with your grip tension at level two? So as you go through the serve, yes, I see you starting to tense up. Now I simply say, Alex, on a scale of one to five, how's your grip pressure? We now have a way we can judge things right away. Instead of saying, not so hard, a little softer. Because to me, right. soft means one thing. You may mean something else. So I watch coaches get really frustrated, as well as students, because they're asking for things that they're not really getting. I spoke at the I said, Minnesota High School Coaches Workshop, and afterwards this guy came up and he says, I just want to tell you something, you just saved my career. I knew I had the stupidest kids in Minnesota. I realized it was me. 
I, I was asking for the wrong thing. He said, you just saved my career, and I'm glad my kids aren't that stupid after all. I'm glad I'm stupid. But so we do things like we mentioned earlier on the volley. If I tell someone to hit a volley, they'll swing. If I tell them to touch a volley or direct a volley to the target, they won't swing. If I tell someone to hit a forehand, they'll swing hard and flat. If I said, toss me a forehand with your racket, they'll hit top step. I know this sounds kind of silly, and everybody's going, yeah, 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 whatever. But your words create pictures. So I've always described my job as being an artist. My job is to paint pictures in people's heads. The words I use create pictures. Incorrect words create incorrect incorrect pictures. Uh, If I said, uh, Alex, move your feet after you make the volley. So you stop, make your volley, then you move your feet. Oh, sorry, that wasn't what I meant. Alex, I'd like you to keep walking forward as you make the volley. So I'm going to toss your ball. Without changing your stride, keep walking after you make the shot. It's okay. Now I got, I got you to feel how to naturally move through the ball without doing something really stiff and tactical. Uh, we know two things that players hate. One of them is called a split step. Because as soon as you do split step, I know that's something I don't do and you keep yelling at me. So I, the thing we do naturally is a thing called the mall shuffle. So Alex and I are walking down the mall and I almost bump into you. I do the mall shuffle to go around you. And what it did was a series of small split steps so that I could figure out which way you were going so I could go the other way. So if you tell someone to do the mall shuffle, they will adjust their feet correctly, thinking about doing a split step. Because so often uh, people use the word, you've got a split stop. Uh, not what I had in mind. A split spring, uh, not quite have in mind either. Uh, do the mall shuffle and then keep going forward. Oh, okay, I can do that. So right. mostly my job is to convince people they already know what to do. There's nothing I'm giving this different. These are all really life skills that you have. Um, if, I, if I toss you a ball and ask you to catch it with your right hand, would you move your left foot or your right foot? So if you're standing up and I say, Alex, here's the ball to your right, and I toss you the ball, which foot would you move first? What do you think you'd do, Alex? I think I might move my right foot first. Let me think. I think you'd be pretty no, normal if you did. I'd reach with my left to catch the right. Exactly. So what happens is you go right foot first if the ball's on your right. If I toss the ball to your left, which foot would you move first? Your left foot. So right. when the ball's, you hit a, left, a volley on your left side, your, your body naturally wants to move the left foot first unless you've been trained to move your right foot first. And the only way that you'll ever move your right foot is you've been taught to cross your legs to hit. And right. that's one way, but the least effective way to get to the ball. So once again, it's the words again that create pictures. And my point is, I just toss the ball to the player and say, which foot did you move? That's your body's natural way to move. So let's move naturally today. Just how you move on your outside foot when you go through. Um, right. instinct- lot- I'm sorry, go okay, ahead. A lot of players have, the, have natural instincts. And if you can get that natural instinct out of them, you can, you can actually build on what they already know how to do instead of having to teach them something that they already know how to do, but you're trying to teach it to them, but they can already do it. Right. I think that's one of the problems we get into as coaches. We, we don't use a player's natural instincts as well. We try to make them do things that we see. Um, the most common error is I'll see something as a coach and try to coach that part. Like, I want you to turn your shoulders to volley. Well, actually, I didn't turn my shoulders to volley. When I stepped forward, because my right foot came forward, my right shoulder came forward, I said, see, you turned your shoulders. I said, yes, because I stepped with my right foot. So what we look at is the end result and try to make that happen during the shot. When if that's not really happened, it's what we see at the end. We don't see what happens to make it happen as it's actually happening. So I really right. try to work at really trying to look. I guess the best thing you can do, Alex, is 
put a tape recorder in your pocket and teach a lesson. After the lesson, take the tape recorder out and see if you can visualize what you just said. Because in the old days, I used to buy audio tapes of drills. Because I said, Alex has got a, this great drill tape. I'm going to buy it. It's audio tape. I take it home, and Alex says, you hit the ball over here, then you move here, then this guy hits to this player, then you go over there. Oh, crap. I can't quite visualize right. what he's doing. Alex had said, the player in the deuce court hits the ball down the line to the player in the ad court, who hits a loopy ball back to square three, so the player can play a backhand down the line to, to the opponent's forehand. I at least have a chance to visualize what it was you were doing in the drill. It's amazing how it. much visualization we use in, in, I learned that from you, to paint the picture in their head. And I'll often ask the player, what are you thinking about when you're doing this? And sometimes they can't tell me. They've got to stop and think about, wait a minute, I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, you were thinking when you were doing this. You were thinking something, right? You weren't just out there doing nothing. And when you get them to stop and think, I think that's when we open up their, their mind to actually receiving the information or the picture we're trying to paint in their head. That's right. One of the things you try to do, when you're making corrections on a player, do it close to the net because if they miss while you're doing the correction, they won't trust you. They won't trust what you're trying to do. So you either have them hit balls into the fence when you're making a correction or do it close enough to the net that they're not worried about missing the shot. Right. As you move them back and there becomes more space, all of a sudden they'll start to miss. You move them back up again until they don't miss, then you move them back again. Correction and technical thoughts like that again distract the player from the ball. So I tell my players all the time, I'm going to distract you from the ball because I'm going to have you focus on where your right foot is. Because if their mind's trying to visualize the right foot, they're disconnected from the ball. So I have to let them understand that. that so if they miss, understand why they're missing. Then eventually I'll say, okay, now I think you've got it. Let's just focus on the ball this time and see if you can do it without thinking about the footwork. Because yeah, really you have to feel the footwork. You have to feel the grip pressure. Because no one's ever came in and described anything that was related to, didn't feel good today. I couldn't feel my forehand. I felt out of focus. So everything right. we know intellectually has to be related to how it feels in match play, which is why we hit 100 balls in a row, develop a feel for the shot, not a technical thought, just the feel. And so the coach, I've got to understand, I, when I disconnect them by having them think about something technically, I'm going to disconnect them from their feel for the shot. Then I have to reconnect them so they can just feel it without thinking, which is what we call unconscious competent. Okay. Remember the four learning stages, Alex? You need, now you put it me on the spot. I don't. Uh, actually, that's one of the questions. That is one of the questions, so we'll just touch on that. <laughs> you done right. perfectly I'm going to skip out that one. <laughs> the, first, the first stage of learning is unconscious incompetent, meaning I didn't know that. The next stage is consciously incompetent. I keep forgetting that. The third stage is consciously competent. If I think about it, I can do it. But the, final, the fourth stage is called unconscious competent. You have to go through all four stages to learn something unless you can say, do you ski? Yeah. When you turn, which foot do you plant to make a turn to the left? Your right foot. Great. Let's do the same in tennis. I want you to plant your outside foot so you can move back to your left. I helped you skip over the unconscious incompetent, meaning I helped you skip to the next level, meaning you already know it. So now you're already consciously competent. I made you skip two levels by relating to something you already knew. And that's how we try to help the players advance faster and say, we're not showing you anything you don't already know how to do. And so I always build them up by realizing that you already understand what we're doing, Alex. I'm just going to show you how to do it with the tennis racket or on the tennis court. So the four stages of learning helped me as a coach to realize why they were getting it or how to help them skip ahead in the learning process. 
Very good. Yes, and that's it, I should have that in my forefront. And I, some of the other things that you've taught me, I do kind of not subconsciously, but it comes back when the moment calls for it. You know, because uh, we teach so many lessons. And uh, I've actually uh, I listened to one of your talks, and I've actually started to uh, videotape my lesson. I put the the camera up on the fence, and I videotape yes. my lesson. I want to see if I'm wasting any time. Am I trying? Am I really? Uh, giving the student as much time as I can on the court or we picking up balls. And I remember when I took my first private lesson with you, I didn't pick up one ball the entire time. Um, it was, Alex, we'll get a quick drink, and that took me 30, 45 seconds. By the time I came back, you had another basket ready to go. And we really maximized our time on the court. And so, and I also listen to what I'm telling the students uh, to make sure I'm, I'm coming across in the right way. So if not, I can, I can make those adjustments. I still do that in my group drills. In the group drills, I, I create a drill, and then when it's time to pick up the balls, I pick up the balls, and I have my students hit with each other. I have one of them become the pros, because if they don't learn how to practice without me, they become pro-dependent, which is kind of nice. But they're not going to go practice if they can't do it by themselves. So picking up the balls allows me to observe them while they're repeating a skill we've just practiced to see if they actually own that skill or not. And so unfortunately, I don't get a lot of, take a lot of water. Because right. uh, when they drink water, I'm picking up tennis balls. Ready to go again? I'm ready to go again. So my doctor always says, you don't drink water, do you? I said, no, I'm a camel. I'm a camel. <laughs> um, so let's talk. We're running out of time here, but I want to touch real quick on uh, and I have two topics. But if you can touch really quick on just the beginning of how to teach a player some tactics. And just real quick, what is a tactic and how do you start to teach it? Okay. Um, a tactic is a skill that you use to execute a strategy. And people get strategies and tactics confused a lot. On the tennis court, there's actually four squares. There's the deuce service court, the space behind the deuce service court, there's the space behind the ad court, and the ad service court. So tennis is basically based on four squares. So if I said, you, if I said Alex, you're in the deuce court on your forehand side, hit back to square two, which would be cross court behind the service line. Right. All right, Alex, uh, hit the ball into square one. What would you have to do different with your swing and with your spin to make the ball go into square one? So what would you so, do if you were hitting it? Uh, what, more spin and not as high over than that, maybe? You got it. I might go under spin. So right away, I try right. to see if the player understands how to change. Remember what the five priorities are on every shot? Get the ball in play with the correct direction the correct depth, the correct spin, and the correct speed. That's your five tactical priorities. So what I did, you just, as a coach, every lesson is based on those five priorities. Is can the player get the ball in play? Does he understand depth? So if I say hit cross-court, Alex, I didn't define depth. I defined direction. By hitting, say, hitting the square two, I defined direction and depth at the same time. The spin and the speed is how you manage the depth of the shot. So you'd hit more spin with more height to make the ball go to square two. You'd hit more spin and less speed to make the ball go to square one. So by introducing the four squares, we introduce tactics. Most uh, sports play, uh, they call, coach calls a timeout and runs a play. So in tennis, I'm going to run a play. Alex, I want you to run a 3-1-3. Three, three. say, what's a 3-1-3? Three, three? three is, a, is the ad court square. You hit a high, deep ball to square three. When you get a short ball, hit it to square one, then loop it back to square three again. So one of my juniors won the 16s and the 18s. He plays uh, number four at uh, 
USC now, Eric Johnson. He said, for two years, I only had one strategy. Deep to square three, uh, get a short ball, rip it down the line to square one. That was his strategy for two years. He dominated the 16s and 18s. Now he's wow. actually got more advanced since then. But that's your strategy. High, high, deep, high deep to the backhand, high deep to the backhand. How deep? Square three. So if you play the four squares, and initially when we start off the lesson, I'll feed you the ball and I'll call out the squares. Then eventually I'll say, okay, now, in a match, you have to call out the squares. So I'm going to feed you the ball, Alex, and before the ball bounces on your side of the court, you have to tell me which square you're going to hit to. After the ball bounces, the ball will dictate where you can hit it. When the ball's in the air, right. you can choose. So after the ball bounces, Alex says, square one, and he, he's able to hit the square one. And so then you start to call out the squares, and I challenge you by running you further side to side or moving you up and back and see if you choose the right square based on your position in the court. So now we've introduced how to ex execute a strategy. The tactics is how you make it go there. That's where the five priorities come in. What tactic did you use to make the strategy work? So deep to square three would be more spin, slower speed, with more height. Tactics is how you make the strategy happen. But most coaches don't really, most players don't understand how to define the difference between tactics and strategy. Tactics is how right. to make a shot happen. But that's we use the, four, the four squares as our basic strategy plan. And once I understand how to use it against somebody, I also can recognize when it's being used against me. So I can say, ah, yes. he's running a 3-1-3 three, three on me. Or he's just going 2-4 on me. He's going deep by forehand, short time backhand. So once I use the strategy, I start to understand what's being done to me so I can change my tactics to execute a different strategy against him. So I say keep it really simple. It's most everybody, every junior played four square in grade school. So we already understand four square anyhow. Right. And just play square. You know, uh, quick one before I wish we leave. We had, before we leave. I, I, How much time do we have? Sorry, I can't. I wish we had three hours so I could literally go on and on and on with you and, and get so much information out to listeners, but we're up against the clock. But I okay. do want to just, Get in real quick um, to let the listeners know uh, what club are you at now in Northern California? Where are you? It's the club is called AVAC. It's in San Jose, California. It's called Almanin Valley Athletic Club. It's a premier sports facility. We have 11 beautiful courts with two viewing decks. It's in the center cafe and pro shop. Um, it's it's neat. We've we've done a good job with our program there, and we have a lot of fun. All my staff's been with me for about 10 years. I've been in San Jose about the last 19 years. Uh, it's incredible that you've been gone that long from Arizona. I know. And, um, incredible. Have, if people will email me, I'll answer any question. I get about 100 emails a day, and I try to respond to them all that day. Uh, my email is kendehart at AOL.com. You can also visit my website. It's kendehartennis, just K-E-N-D-E-H-A-R-T-T-E-N-I-S.com. And on the website, there's free video tennis tips. If you click on the website, go to tips. There's about um, 30 free video tennis tips on there. Also, I have eight DVDs out on strategy and tactics and games for different players and one on defeating the monsters in your mind. And I also accept phone calls at any time, 408-892-3806, so I give lessons on the phone as well. You are incredible. You know, I'd watch you work at Western Reserve Clan, and you'd be going a 12th hour, and I would finish my sixth and be exhausted, and mm -hmm. you're still going and then you still take time out and meet with the staff and help them. And I don't know how you, you still do it, but God bless you because uh, we, we need 
people like you and mentors like you to uh, to keep us going in the sport. And, and I just want to thank you for, for everything that you've done for me in my career as a coach and as a player and, and especially as a friend. Um, and, and thank you for being on the show today. It really helped. Hopefully we can get you back on again and, and touch on a few more other things for, for the, the listeners. And hopefully we'll get you on when we're doing the French Open and Australian Open. And as we talked about earlier, uh, you can come on and talk to us when you're off at the International Symposiums and give us some feedback on how those things are going out there. Hi, Sonny. Well, Alex, I'm very proud of you. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to see someone like yourself take the information and work with it and develop their own career. Because there's a lot of information out there for everybody, but it's who chooses to use it, and you've chose to use it wisely, and you've done it well. I'm really proud of you and all the things you've done as well. So it makes me really proud. I appreciate it. And coming from you, it means a lot. So uh, for that, for uh, Ken Hart and Alex Ramirez, I appreciate everybody listening in. Everybody uh, have a good day, and God bless. Have a good one. Bye-bye. That's all, folks.